uh, we're starting a new habit as a congregation where we read God's Word together. So if you would, pull this out and get ready. Three, two, one, go. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Would you join me in prayer? Father, your word has power. And we pray, Father, as we open your word this morning, that you would come and break up the hard places in us. Father, that you would come and have your way among us that when we leave this place, we can say, surely we have been with the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You know, we humans have an interesting relationship with hope. Hope is something that we both really, really want and is something that can be frightening to us. So, for example, one highbrow example, one lowbrow example. Um, in 1946, a man named Viktor Frankl had just survived the Nazi concentration camps. And he did, a, he, he did a kind of a psychological study on those that had survived versus those who didn't survive the concentration camps. And what he found was that everybody went through the first two stages the same. First, uh, there was a period of shock and this real overwhelming sense of, I can't believe this is happening to me. And then there's a period of just, I've got to do whatever it takes to survive. And then after that, one of two things happened. Some made it and some gave up. And the difference was hope. Those who had, this is what he found, very simple. But like he said, those who had hope survived. Those who didn't died. Highbrow example. Lowbrow example is the Avengers, the Avengers Endgame. Okay, so many of you have seen this movie. Uh, I'm not going to spoil anything, but too late, really, if you haven't. Uh, but um, so in the Avengers, there, there are two characters, uh, Black Widow, Natasha, and, and then Hawkeye. And Hawkeye has lost his family in the last movie, the Infinity War. And Black, Black Widow, Natasha, comes to find him to tell him, hey, we think we know how to beat Thanos. We know, we know how to conquer this. And he says to her, oh, don't give me hope. I think those are powerful words because he's like, hope is scary. Hope is going to call for things from me 
that I'm not sure I want to give. This morning, we're picking up this passage uh, in 1 Peter, where Peter is writing to a people who are also in distress. I mean, both of those groups we talked about, Infinity War, Nazi concentration camps, people in distress. Uh, but here, he writes also to people who are in distress, who are afraid and uncertain. Uh, he describes as them facing various trials. I think he's vaguely, he's purposely vague in this passage about what those are. But he's writing to people who need hope. He's writing to people who are uh, facing uh, hardship and pain. And if, if, what do they most need to hear? What do you most need to hear when you're in a place of hardship and pain and suffering and confusion and what's going to happen? And am I going to make it this week? Is hope. What they most need is hope. And this is what Peter points them to. If you look at verse 6, where we started, it says, In this, in this you rejoice. But what he's referring to is in this hope. And last week, Pastor Mark, uh, pastor of one of our daughter churches, we were doing a pulpit swap last week, he talked about living hope, the hope that we have in Jesus. Now, Peter is reclaiming this word hope for us. In our time, in our language, this is how we use the word hope. Wistful wishing. Maybe it'll happen, but probably not. Right? We, you hear people say things like, I hope things are going to work out, but we got to live in the real world. Have you ever felt that way or heard that? In our language, we use the word hope to talk about sort of wishes, good feelings, but we know probably not going to work out. we got to be realists, right? But when Peter uses this word hope, he means something vastly different from how we use the word hope. He is not talking about an idealistic wish dream of what could be. He is talking about Christian hope as a living hope. Do you have any idea? I mean, do you have any clue what an amazing thing it is to be a Christian? You know, you, you have no idea. I think for some of us, this is so like, yeah, we just do that. Grown up in it, right? It's, no, you have no idea because for us, hope is not an it. Hope is a he. Hope is not an idea. Hope is a resurrected person. Hope is a him. We have a living hope, which is an anchor for our souls. And today we're going to look at this hope, real brief, under four, four headings. I know you all don't think I can do four headings real brief, but I can, okay? Four, four headings this morning, okay? Provocative hope. A hope despite circumstances, a hope despite appearances, and supernatural hope. Let's look at this together. Verse 6, a pro provocative hope. What does this hope do for them? As these people are facing trials, what does this hope do for them? And look what it says, verse 6. In this, in this hope, you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. In this, you rejoice. Rejoicing is mentioned here twice. In fact, look at verse 8. And, and here's, the, here's a parallel trans, translation for this. We read verse 8. Um, you rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Let me just say that's you mega rejoice with a glorified joy beyond all words. Okay, You mega rejoice with a glorified joy that is beyond all world, words. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't know that I mega rejoice <laughs> in much of anything. Now, I'm happy when we have a day with low humidity in Raleigh during the summer, right? Like, I'm happy when the Canes win. 
I'm happy when I get a parking spot at the Harris Teeter on Oberlin Road, right? Those things, I'm happy about those things. But mega rejoicing? Mega rejoicing. I mean, that's something different. That is something different. When you see this kind of rejoicing, isn't it provocative? I mean, you see someone like really, really unbridled joy. Isn't it provocative? Uh, This is probably a sign of how old I am. But I'm a sucker for videos of army officers returning home from overseas and seeing their pets again. Okay, so I know this, right, like, this is like almost like cat videos, but uh, just humor me, right? But I just can't, I can't get enough of these. Uh, these start appearing on Twitter, and I've just, I'm kind of addicted to these things, where the, the army, you know, or the marine comes off, the, comes down the gangplank, and somebody's there with their dog, and the dog just comes unhinged, right? It's like, I can't get enough licks in, right? You know, I'm trying to get up on you. You know, you know the dog thing, right? Like, they do that. Um, see, that's mega rejoicing. That's mega rejoicing with glorified joy beyond words. I mean, I'm like, that picture right there, what that dog is doing is that kind of joy. Yeah, that kind of, this hope that we have, this living hope, this Jesus, is a fountain of joy. A fountain, not a trickle. A fountain of joy. This is why, what we're praying for for our worship in, at CTK, that it is marked by joy. Because that is the only thing that's fitting with our Savior. That is the only thing fitting to a living hope. Now, there are lots of other kind of emotions we should have in worship. Uh, sadness over our sin. Lament over things being, being wrong. Like, you know, uh, silence at times. Reflection. But man, our worship should be marked with that kind of joy. That kind of unbridled, mega rejoicing with a glorified joy beyond words. Is that, only that is equal to our Christ, isn't it? I mean, isn't it? Are y'all here this morning? Because I, I, I think it's a vacation week, I know, but there's a lot of people here, but I can't hear you, so I need your help this morning. Uh, listen, this kind of joy is what's fitting. Um, a couple quotes here. Uh, John Calvin says, there is not one blade of grass, not one blade of grass, not one color in the world that is not intended to make us rejoice who know him. Right? It's all for our joy. It's all to remind us of how good he is. Um, Barbara Duguid, joy blossoms in our hearts not as we try harder and harder to be a better Christian, but as we see more clearly the depth of our sin and understand more fully our helplessness and His merit. Right? Mega rejoicing in this. Uh, Henry Nouwen, joy is based on the spiritual knowledge that while the world in which we live is shrouded in darkness, God has overcome the world. Amen? Right? Aren't these things true? I mean, this is what should bring provocative joy. You know, have you ever been walking um, down the sidewalk and you, you're you kind of are walking in the mall and, and you realize everybody's sort of looking up and pointing. It's almost impossible for you not to just do the like, okay, you know, I got to go see what they're doing, right? It, you, you have to look up. You have to see what they're pointing at. You, it, there's something about other people turning, right? Like you're like, what is that? Somebody just turned to the back of the room. I know, okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, but look, it's, it's, we have to do that. I mean, it's a human thing. And, and I, I think that, look, that's provocative. That's disruptive. I think the church of Jesus Christ is not seen as, um, it's not overlooked and marginalized because it's irrelevant. <laughs> is, is our message, the living hope of Jesus, irrelevant? No, it is the most 
relevant news for every human being with a pulse on the planet, isn't it? Right? Isn't it the most relevant? Why is it overlooked and marginalized? Because there's no joy. Because there's no like, <gasps> you know, when believers in the Lord Jesus Christ tap into the wonder of living with this kind of hope, and we go, <gasps> other people have to take notice. And look, that's not a command. That's just, that's what it means to have a living hope. You know what um, your elders at CTK pray for you? They pray for more freedom in our worship service. You know, we, we want to be a place where, like, you're not like, hey, it's Presbyterian, I got it to stick my hands in my pockets. Like, I got to do that. You know, like, you want to raise your hands here, you go right ahead. You need to move your body to the music. Uh, it's great music. Like, you should be moving your body to it, right? You, you, want, you want to shout? It's okay to be a shouting church, right? That is reflective of the living hope that we have. So, more joy in worship? Yes, please. Yes, please, pass that. We'd love some over here, right? Uh, so, Peter writes to this scattered group of Christians, you mega rejoice with a glorified joy beyond words. So here's the question for you. Do you? Do you? Second, a hope despite circumstances. Now look again at verses 6 and 7. Verses 6 and 7. Uh, In this you, re you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. Now, this is fascinating. This is fascinating. Both are present tense. Sorry to go English major on you, but both are present tense here, right? Um, they are, present tense, rejoicing in hope, while present tense, they're suffering, suffering grief in all kinds of trials. They are mega rejoicing while they're being refined as by fire. All present tense. All happening at the same time. What does that mean? That means that Peter is talking about a hope that we don't tap into most of the time. A hope that is not based on circumstances. You know, they are facing what most people would consider to be hopeless circumstances with hope and rejoicing. Hopeless, hopeful. So I want, I want to show you this look, though. These Christians are not pretending. Now, some of you grew up with a brand or a version of Christianity, either as explicit or implicit, that's sort of like, hey, um, be strong, stiff upper lip, don't show emotions, don't be sad. How are, things, how are things going for you today? They're great. No, they're not. You're suffering. You're struggling, right? These people aren't pretending. We read here, they're grieved. They're, they're grieved. They aren't pretending like things are great when they're not. And yet, Miroslav Volf, who survived the Croatian-Serbian War, he said this, that hope it does not mean a dream about dreaming about ourselves into a different reality. It, it's not denial. It's honest. And yet, they're doing something else in the midst of their suffering and pain and trials. They're doing something else. They're not denying it. They're doing something else with it. They see it as a reality, but they do something more. See, Peter shows us. He counsels them. He, he counsels us. He says, you know, we don't know the why of our trials, but we know the what for, right? Like, we don't know... We don't know the why. Why this? Why this pain? Why now? Why in this way? But we do know what God is up to in our pain, in our trials, in our circumstances. We do know that. See, like a refining fire, precious metals, Peter tells us there are two things God is always up to in your sufferings. He is up, up to two things, to show you the reality of your faith, 
to purify the quality of your faith, to show you the reality, to purify the quality. Let me, let me show you this. See, God uses our sufferings to prove to us, not to him, to prove to us the reality of our faith. It says here, prove the genuineness of your faith. Again, prove to whom? Not God. God knows where you stand with him. To prove to you. To prove to you that in suffering, maybe you're losing everything else, but God is what you have. Have you ever been in the, that place? Has anybody been in that place? Where you're like, you come to the end, and you're like, I don't have anything else, but I have God. Right? Like, that's what God is doing. He's up to in our trials. He is proving the genuineness of our faith. And second, he is, uses sufferings to purify the quality of your faith. Look, look here. Uh, again, fire on precious metal. Uh, he melts gold to get the impurities out. Right? It says, um, Peter writes here, it perishes as tested by fire. Now, that doesn't mean an imperishable metal stops being a metal. Right? But it, what happens to gold when you, lift, when you heat it up? It's not hard anymore, right? It becomes liquid, right? And that when it becomes liquid, the, the, the jeweler can scrape the impurities off the top and remake it, re-melt uh, it. Uh, the melting process, it can be reformed into something else. Imperishable metals don't really melt. But what they are, what, what is God doing? He's purifying. But, I mean, I love this, this image of melted gold because what does that say to us about you? But you in the midst of your sufferings today, you in the midst of your trials today, you are valuable to him. I mean, this is precious metals, valuable metals. He, he heats things and purifies things that are valuable to him, that he loves, that he cares for, that he prizes. Do you know the name Kara Tippetts? You might have heard that name. Kara Tippetts was, a famous, uh, was famous really for her sufferings. Uh, married to a pastor out in Colorado in our denomination, uh, and she got a, a diagnosis of, of terminal breast cancer. And she began, she, was, she had a blog, but this blog, after she got this diagnosis, just kind of went through the roof as she talked about the sufferings and facing that and facing like losing life with my, chi with my kids and losing life. And she wrote, writes this in her book, The Hardest Peace. She actually died in, in, in March of 2015. But, but she writes this, she says, it takes courage humiliating courage to step aside from your own sovereignty and imagined control over all life in a world full of unbelievably beautiful bodies and able bodies where new diet fads are fashioned every day to keep cancer away, right? It's hard to realize you may be living in the midst of the best story ever, ever told. And she's saying this about cancer, the best story ever told. That the story of breast cancer could possibly be a good story, a great story even, it, it, it would be easier to shake my fist at the test results and scream that this isn't fair. It's not the right story. But to receive and to humbly receive the story that no one would ever want, nobody, and know there's goodness in the midst of its horror. That's not something I could ever do on my own strength. Right? You see, to hope means not that we're not dreaming ourselves into another realm of existence, but that this life suffused with trials with hardship, with pain, is, with suffering, is being transformed. We're being transformed. This world is going to be transformed into God's new world. You know, the reality is that your hope and my hope is indestructible. It is indestructible. Even when others look at our lives and they say, man, that is hopeless circumstances. That's, who would ever 
do that to their child. I'm like, what a horrible thing. But what we know is that God in Christ has turned his face toward us in our pain and will never turn away. We have that kind of hope. This is why Kara could write something that only a Christian could write. And that may sound boastful. Like, you know, if you're not a Christian here, and you're like, yeah, yeah. But she writes things like this. She says, cancer is a gift. Yes, I said it. I can say that cancer and suffering give the beautiful gift of perspective. It's a gift you never wanted. It's a gift wrapped in confusion and brokenness and heartbreak. It's a gift that strips you of all your other ideas of living from you completely. But it's a gift. I mean, only a Christian says that. That's crazy talk. But that's somebody who has a living hope. Now, in pain, I see us making three errors. And, and um, maybe you haven't made these errors. But people around you make these errors. And this is what we do. These are the, the ways that we sort of like get off the rails of understanding God in our pain. So there, here, here's what they are. First, we equate, we're assuming the testing of our faith is the failure of our faith. And I see this happen all the time. And if you hit hardship and circumstances that you can't handle, and you're, you're riding this roller coaster, you're up and down on the waves of doubt and fear and confusion, you're like, oh, something is wrong with me, right? I, I must not be a, a Christian at this point. No, no, no. If you're riding those waves up and down, and you're going like, one day I believe this stuff, the next day I'm in the gutter, right? Like, one day I'm like, yes, God's at work. The next day I'm struggling. Guess what? You're alive, Praise God, he's at work in you, right? Like our faith life is not just a, like a straight arrow going up like this, right? It's not, it's not a vector, right? Just, you know, we're going up and down. And if you're in the midst of like, you're like, some days when I'm really at my best, I really believe this stuff, but a lot of days I don't. You know what? Congratulations, you're a living Christian, but you have a living hope. Thank God it's not about your strength of your belief, it's about him. That's what holds you, holds you fast, Second error I see in this, uh, we, we, we do this thing where we're trying to find the lesson that God is trying to teach us. You know this one? Oh, man, this one is popular. Like we're, we're like, okay, like God is a divine Mr. Miyagi from Karate Kid. You remember that? Okay, Mr. Miyagi takes Daniel's son, and he, he takes him out, and he puts him through all these horrible things. So he's like, wash the car, and Daniel's has to wash all of his cars, right? And then later on, you realize he's teaching him how to block, right? Like, you know, it's like... Whew. You know, uh, and then he teaches him to, to paint the fence. He's like, you go up, you go down. He's like, and you, he's like doing this huge fence, right? And later on, you realize he's teaching him to block. Like up, you know, down, right? And, and this is what people think of that God is like. In our suffering, God has a secret, secret um, lesson for you to learn, like a divine Mr. Miyagi, and you're not going to learn, you're not going to get out of those trials until you figure it out. You heard this? Does that square with what we know of the greatest sufferers in the Bible? Go read Job. Go read the story of Joseph. You go, go read about Naomi in the book of Ruth. It, it, God didn't have, in their suffering, God didn't have a lesson for them to learn, but a God to cling to. That's right, right. In your trials and sufferings, God does not have some secret lesson, and you finally got to figure it out, and you're not going to get out of it until you get it. No, he has a Jesus for you to cling to, right? Third here, um, third error, thinking that suffering is a sign of unconfessed sins in your life. Now, sure, of course, you can make terrible choices that mess up your life. You can do sinful things that have horrible consequences that mess up your life. I don't think there's a person in this room who hasn't experienced some of that. Am I right? If you're an adult, 
right? Yet, we can't draw a line between unconfessed sin and suffering. And here's why. Because the best person in the world, with the least amount of sin, suffered the greatest. Right? You know who I'm talking about, right? We're all on the same page about Jesus, right? Jesus, the one with the most, the, the least amount of sin, most amount of suffering. So it can't mean that, like, you're suffering because of something you did all the time. God is up to so much more. See, um, some of you are like, well, yeah, but Jesus was perfect, right? So, like, that, that, that's Jesus. He's different. And, and I, I say, why do you think that? I mean, didn't Jesus say, say, like, if they hated me, they'll hate you? A servant isn't greater than his master. See, real hope is not a denial of your circumstances. It's not that your sufferings have come because you haven't confessed enough sin. It's not a failure of your faith in some way. It's not that you haven't listened, learned a lesson. The reality is you are living, you have a living hope even in what others consider to be hopeless circumstances. Even then. You know, one of the, the best things happening at our church isn't a, actually from our church. It just happened this morning. We have a partnership in a prayer ministry with another church called Mount Pleasant. And, uh, man, I come out of those, those prayer times like this morning, and, you know, I'm down, but I'm, I'm like, you know, I'm ready to go, you know, because uh, um, I'm like, yes, we really believe this. A couple, couple months ago, David reminded me this, like, we're, we're praying, and we're talking about praying and, and walking through hardship and trials. And one of the women there, Benita, who's a great prayer warrior and is an amazing mission leader, um, she's, like, she's like, it's like dancing in the rain. You know, that's what life as a Christian is. Living hope in the midst of hard circumstances. Dancing in the rain. I'm like, yeah, that'll preach. Right? That's, that's the truth. That's what it means. That in Christ, in God, God in Christ has turned his face toward us, and he will never turn away. Uh, third, hope despite appearances. Now look with me, verses 8 and 9. Peter, again, is, is showing us there's an anchor for your soul that's despite what you see. And he's talking about these people in this church. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with a hope that is inexpressible and filled with glory. He's saying, look, there's something here that is despite appearances. Despite what you see, despite how you feel, despite how the evidence amassed around you that God has abandoned you or that the world is out of control or that God has disappeared, these people are like, we found God is still there. And, and, you know, hope, not the wish it away kind, but the real biblical hope is a confidence in the unseen presence of Jesus. Now, I meet people all the time. And when I introduce myself as a pastor, a lot of times they'll either tell me where they go to church, if, if they really go. But a lot of times they'll tell me why they've stopped believing in God. And they are some of the saddest conversations. You know, I used to be into that until a close friend died and, you know, I asked and asked God to do something, and he just, he just didn't listen to me. You know, I, I, I can't believe in God after the trauma my family has been through. I can't believe in a God like this. Where is God? If I were God, I would never let my kids go through that. How could he let his kids go through that? Uh, if, and, you know, this is the big one. If I can't see a reason for the suffering, there must not be one. That's what a lot of people are really saying. I can't see there's a reason for this. There must not be one. God must have abandoned me. And, you know, when people share those things with me, I honor them, right? Like, I'm not, not like uh, giving them the, the Jesus juke in that moment. I'm like, I know. Those are honest statements. Those are hardships. Those represent real pain. And, and I want to 
make light of that. If that's you this morning, those are understandable statements. But the person misses out on something of what hope means. And to get this point, you're going to have to put on your big boy pants, your big girl pants right now, okay? Here's what it means. Because Jesus is never absent. Uh, When I was in college, I had this favorite passage in Philippians 3 that I used to pray all the time, but I could only pray the first half of it. Uh, This is Philippians 3. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participating in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection of the dead. Now, I love that passage, the first part. So listen to, you'll get this, right? You know, let me read it again. Let me chop it up. I want to know Christ. Right? Yeah. I want to know Christ. Yes. I want to know him and the power of his resurrection. Yes. And that's where I'd stop praying. Because the rest of it was too hard to say out loud. Right? Listen to the rest of it. I want to know Christ. I know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings. You know, like that's like the needle scratching the record noise, right? No. I don't want that part. I don't want that part. Are you crazy? Paul, why are you... Praying to know Christ in, the, in sufferings. See, what Peter is saying, what, what Paul is saying, is that there is a fellowship and a love for God that grows in the midst of trials like nowhere else. In, like nowhere else. Um, love that grows for the unseen Jesus that can only come through pain. See, we resist that like crazy. We're like, no thank you, I just want my old life back, want my health back, want that relationship back, want some money back want things back like they were, but God is up to so much more in our pain. He wants us to know Jesus more. This is what Kara Tippett says again. Well, ask him about Kara, I promise. My hope is not in the absence of suffering and comfort returned. My hope is in the presence of the one who promises never to leave or forsake. Uh, The one who declares nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God. Nothing. Right? There is something unique And don't miss this. When you hit hardship, when you hit pain, when you hit trials, and I can guarantee with a gold seal this morning that all of us are going to go through these things, right? I can guarantee this, that Jesus is drawing near to you. He is not abandoning you. He is present with you. There is a fellowship with him in the midst of pain and sufferings you will find nowhere else, and it is sweet. And as much as we hate the rest of it, man, it is gold, It is gold. Hope that is despite what it appears to be, but he's right there with you. Finally, um, supernatural hope. Finally, look with me at verses 10 through 12. These verses seem to be Peter changing the subject, but he's actually saying, talking about the same thing. He's talking about the hope that we have, the living hope we have in Christ. And this is what he says. Uh, First, that you stand in a privileged place in history. Now, I know that doesn't make any sense. Most Christians will say things, and I, we, we, we talk like this all the time, like, man, I wish I'd been there with Noah. I wish I'd been there with Abraham. wish I'd been there with David. wish I'd been there with Ruth. Then I wish I'd been there with Mary Magdalene on the, the morning of the resurrection. I wish I'd been one of his disciples. And we identify those people like, it would be better if I could have been an eyewitness to these things. But he says, no, these people generations before, they were looking, they were standing on tiptoe to try to catch a glimpse of what you know. What do you know? You know there's an empty tomb. You know there's an indwelling spirit. You know there's a church of Jesus Christ. You know there's going to be a new heavens and new earth. 
Generations before you would have given their right arm to know what you know and rejoice in what you can rejoice in. You have a privileged place in history. That's my paraphrase of verse 10. Okay. And then uh, verse 12, you also stand in a privileged place in the cosmos. Again, we don't think this way. But there are real messengers of God called angels. And they don't look like the ones in your Jesus Bibles as a kid. They are real powerful supernatural beings. And it tells us that of the living hope that you have and this particular vantage point that you as a human being who loves Jesus have, you know, even the angels are jealous of you. And here's why. Even angels long to look into these things. Like angels are, they're, they're smarter than you. They see lots more than you do. But one thing they don't have is this, infleshedness like Jesus. And there's a particular vantage point that you have as a person made in God's image, redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, uh, party to his Holy Spirit. You know, there's a particular vantage point that you have that even the angels envy you of. You have a supernatural hope because of these things, a supernatural hope. Now, here's the good news. Um, how do you get this hope? I hope some of you are asking this this morning. I hope, if, you know, if you're here this morning and you don't no, Jesus, you don't have a living hope. You have dead hopes. And I would not be kind to you if I let you leave this, leave this place without telling you that. You have wishes. You have longings and desires. None of those things are bad. But they are not a living hope. They are not a living hope. You don't have this kind of supernatural, non-circumstantial, not based on appearances, provocative hope that Jesus gives. You don't. And the only way you get this is you can't. Ha ha mean preacher trick, right? We read last week, you have to be born again into this. You have to be born again into this living hope. You can't go get it. You can't good enough your way into it. You can't merit your way enough into it. You're never going to be a nice enough person. Sorry. But you're surrounded with people just like that. And you know what we found is that if you ask the Lord, He gives us birth into a living hope. He, he will do this in your life. He will plant life in you that you can never imagine and give you a living hope. In just a moment, I'm going to invite you to come and receive that. So get, get yourself ready. For the rest of us, listen to this. God is able to change the most broken of lives and the, most, um, the, the worst of Christians, like the weakest of Christians, and to be into lives that overflow with incredible hope. And you don't need to be a Bible teacher or a pastor or a missionary for this to be true. So, last story. C.S. Lewis tells this story. He has a book called The Great Divorce, and it's about heaven. you got to use a little imagination with this. Short book. It's about some people, about this person who goes on a bus ride to go tour heaven, right? And, and goes up to heaven and is being escorted around by this angel who's kind of showing them stuff and seeing people and all this. And um, all of a sudden, there's this huge noise and this huge parade that like all these incredible beings and there's this dancing and there's this cheering and there are these crowds and like uh, they have to move back and they're like, the, 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 the tourist is like, what is going on? And, and uh, asks, asks that. He's like, you know, this must be some amazing missionary leader, uh, some, some amazing uh, ministry leader, some amazing pastor and turns to the, um, to the tour guide and says, is it him? Is it her? Uh, you know, is this, could this be, 
you know, and, and lists all these different names. And um, this is what the angel says. Not at all, said he. It's someone you'll have never heard of. Her name on earth was Sarah Smith, and she lived at Golders Green. Um, she seems to be someone, well, uh, of particular importance. Yes, she is one of the great ones. You have heard that fame in this country and fame on earth are two quite different things. This, this is what he's saying. Sarah Smith of Golders Green, never heard of her. And, and that's the point. It's a nobody. It's nobody famous, wasn't a great Bible teacher, wasn't a Christian blogger, wasn't a Christian person who written lots of books, not a famous pastor, uh, not a ministry leader. This is a normal person whose life overflowed with a living hope. God can come into the, the lives of, of so many of us that are just like normal everydayness, right, where we've sort of forgotten the beauty and power of this and cause them to explode with life and joy and hope if we will give ourselves more fully to it. This is what Jesus wants from us most of all, is open hearts to rejoice in the fullness of what he's given us. See, the angel finally says that this, uh, he says, it's like when you throw a stone into the pool and the concentric waves spread out further and further. Who knows where it will end? Redeemed humanity is still young and it's hardly come into its full strength, but already there is enough joy in the little finger of a great saint like that, such as yon, that yonder lady, to waken all dead things of the universe into life. Man, I pray that for our church. I pray that for you, that like you would be so captured <gasps> by the hope that there would be more power in the joy that comes out of your little finger than all the great ones. May it, may it be so. May God make it so. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your power. There is no one like you. Father, we need more of you. We pray, Father, uh, pray for anyone here, here this morning who doesn't know a living hope. Father, would you draw them to yourself this morning? Would you give them boldness to lay hold of that which is life? And Lord, for those who know we have a living hope, but we've forgotten, wake us up. Wake us up, Father. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.